Hello, I'm Bridget Helms, Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship here at Santa Clara University, and this is Line of Sight. And I'm Don Heider, Executive Director of the Markle Center for Applied Ethics, also at Santa Clara. Welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have with us today Christy Markle Bowers. Christy is a two-time graduate of Santa Clara. She got her degree in marketing and her MBA. She serves on a number of nonprofit boards, and, and she is a trustee of Santa Clara University, and she served for many years as a board member of the Markless Center. She's the director of a family winery, Kings Mountains Vineyard, and she's the CEO and co-founder of an ag tech and software service company, Grape AG. Christy, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So, Christy, let's start with this lad, the Grape AG. So, tell me the story of how you arrived at that. So, um, well, I have a dear friend. After I graduated from undergraduate school at Santa Clara, I moved to France and worked for Apple Europe um, as an intern for a year and um, met some really neat people and friends there. And one of them was my friend uh, Tony and Gabby, my friends Tony and Gabby, and they're originally from Mexico City. And we just kept in touch for all of those years uh, since and um, started working with my family's winery. And um, a couple years back, Tony comes to me and says, you know, Tony is, by the way, a serial entrepreneur out of Mexico and said, you know, I've got this great idea that has to do with vineyards and technology. Would you help? So I thought that meant like, you know, take a look and just help a little bit and maybe give some advice or make some connections in the wine world. Um, and then a couple weeks later, he says, well, why don't you be the CEO? And I said, are you, are you out of your mind? Like, I, you know, he said, no, I'm totally not kidding. So um, I was introduced to um, Martin Garcia Wilhelm, who is our co-founder and CTO, who is currently living and working in Mexico. Our, our whole engineering team is in Mexico. Um, and uh, we became business partners before we actually ever met in person. So this idea of, you know, people not being able to work together online is, I think, is hilarious, quite frankly, because it's totally possible. We've since obviously met in person, and uh, that's, that's kind of how it all happened. Then tell us a little bit about what the company does. So we're a data-driven agriculture is what we like to say. Um, and Martin, in fact, likes to say that we listen to the plants speak. So the idea is that, you know, there's a lot of data that happens around a growing environment that not everybody collects in that environment. Um, farmers are, are kind of independent people in general and like to go out and lift their finger into the air and say, you know, I know what to do today. Um, but what we're doing is we're giving them the power of the information of their growing environment at their fingertips. So it's through an app uh, where you can access your weather data, your humidity data. Um, and further from that, as we know, data has kind of become the new currency um, in life. Um, further than that, we have algorithms and we're using some AI on the back end to create efficiencies that maybe we didn't even know about before. Um, we're also able to give them alerts uh, around um, anomalies or, or any kind of um, disease that might appear within their growing environment. And we're starting, obviously, in vineyards. But your, your plan is to go beyond vineyards, you think, eventually? or Absolutely. I mean, other things grow besides grapes. So, <laughs> so yes, absolutely. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about climate change and the impact of climate change. And much of that discussion happens at the sort of 30,000 foot level. And myself, I'm an ag economist and I work with smallholder farmers around the world. And, you know, you know that there's a problem with climate change when you talk to a farmer, because especially smallholder farmer, like they can't do farming the way their parents or their grandparents did because there's no such thing as the wet season and the dry season on a relatively, you know, sort of um, predictable uh, level as it used to be. So I think that this kind of thing that you're doing is going to be really mission critical for the world's uh, smallholder farmers as well as the big you know, producers. Absolutely. And, and that is the idea, um, is not only to give the farmer better information, but to create more efficient, more effective use around things like pesticides um, that impact our environment, like water usage especially, um, and climate change. I mean, say what you want about climate change. The fact of the matter is, if you look at the trend data right now, it's trending in a sort of strange way. Um, uh, we actually have a customer right here in the Santa Cruz Mountains who said, you know, can you look at our 20-year trend data? And, and then we said, sure, but to what end? What are you looking for? And he said, you know, because things are changing, we want to know if we should be changing our rootstock and even possibly planting a different variety of, of grapes because they might the ones we have now may not grow that well in the next 10 to 15 years. So already being able to make better decisions around what actually goes into the dirt um, with the data that you're using. Now, I know you uh, loved your time at Santa Clara. I mean, you're still, <laughs> you're still here. And you took very seriously ethics, social justice, some of those things that are really core to what Santa Clara teaches. So how have you integrated those into your, into your startup? So when Martin and I first met, um, you know, we did the sort of get to know you session and, and we talked a lot about, you know, what, what's our vision for the world and what kind of impact do we want to make? Um, I'm the old lady in the group. Martin's much younger than me. So, you know, um, we're from actually very different generations, different mindsets, uh, different countries. Um, and what we found is that our values are really core and, and they're very similar. And um, the idea that, you know, doing well by doing something good is what we really both want to do. And um, we see where we joke that it's so much easier to work with plants than it is with people. Um, <laughs> so, right. Um, I mean, we're, we were thankful all the time. We, get, we, we, we don't giggle, but we kind of laugh that, um, you know, at least we're not in healthcare right now because, you know, that, that's a really difficult space to be in. Um, so, you know, really everything boils down to being ethical without even talking about or saying the word ethics. Um, you know, just do the right thing, be honest, be good. I mean, it seems so basic, but sometimes people have a hard time doing the basic things. Mm -hmm. Especially in the tech space. Especially in the tech space. And there's, I mean, we, we aren't um, fully ramped up in, in our revenue uh, uh, plans at this point. But we are already saying things like, well, let's set aside like 1% and let's decide later what we're going to do with that 1%. And how do we give back to the community that we're already in? And what is tangential about what we're doing? I mean, maybe we want to go and start executing our system somewhere in Africa. 
um, you know, that has nothing to do with grapes or avocados or hemp or anything else. But maybe we want to just do that with our extra 1% so that we can start to help people there make better decisions. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. I think a lot of companies are kind of both at the startup level and more sort of mature are grappling with this issue of how to do the right thing, right? And people talk about ESG and environmental, social, and governance. And, you know, Silicon Valley has long been the epicenter of innovation um, and problem solving, even before it was called Silicon Valley, um, Mm -hmm. I think. But, you know, not necessarily super well known for the ethical behaviors. And so how, how how do we go about changing that? I think you have to lead by example. I mean, it's really the only, I mean, we can sit here and talk about, you know, I mean, even when you're a child, right, you know, your parents say be good and you think, hmm, do I really want to be good? I don't know. Let's make that decision today. <laughs> right? So incentives, um, there. incentives yeah. are not always there. Exactly. Um, but I think those incentives are growing. Um, I think you're right. Um, the ESG environment absolutely is demanding. Um, I think that the current generation that's coming through, you know, schools and colleges and universities are demanding more of that. Um this generation, I'm a parent as well, and, you know, this generation is willing to go without things that my generation was not because it is the right thing to do by the environment, by their community, by their whatever it is they care about. Um, and I find it very interesting, even in talking to the 20-somethings right now, they're like, yeah, I want to make enough money, but I don't like, yeah, of course, we all want to be billionaires. But I, I, I would rather have a better environment or a better community and make $10,000 less a year. And, and these kids are actually going through that thought process. That did not happen when I was graduating from college. Um, so I'm really proud of them on that one. I mean, I know we like to complain about the millennials, but um, no, I'm really proud of them because this, your generation is the one that is going to make that change. My kids eco-shame me all the time. They tell me that I do all these things wrong. And, oh, yeah, and by the way, I eat beef. Oh, heaven forbid. And, um, you know, and I tell them, I say, well, you know what? We didn't do it right. So that's why we had you. So you can. (laughs) (laughs) So, but you're right. The the Silicon Valley was innovative. I mean, there there is innovation in the dirt here. I mean, we started with apricots and prunes, and, and we had this company called FMC here that developed a lot of ag tech long before silicon ever existed um, in this area. And I think that we forget about those, no pun intended, roots. And with innovation also comes, there's pluses and minuses to it, right? And so I think we're trying to finally figure out the kinks around the good parts and the bad parts of innovation. So can you maybe say a little bit more uh, about that, about what might be some of the the bad parts of innovation that you're seeing and what we might be able to do about that? Well, it used to be this drive to, you know, become the billion dollar company to, you know, be the best stock on the stock market. And it seemed that money was the only driver or, or a measure of success. Um, and now 
money is certainly going to always be a, a driver or a, um, a motivator, as you were saying earlier, um, and an indicator of success. But there are other factors that are becoming more important. Some of those factors that we discussed before, like how we do things, um, how, how we distribute technology, what we use technology for. Um, that's why I think it's so important that engineers learn about ethics and learn a little bit about business. Because as an engineer, you're by your nature, a problem solver. And it really doesn't matter all of the periphery around that problem. What matters is whether or not you solve the problem. Well, what if you solve the problem in a way that's actually detrimental? Because you didn't think about the ethical implications and you didn't think about the costs that had to go with your solution. Yeah, you solved the problem, you created 10 more. So, um, you know, that's that's something that I think um, is super important for the next generation as they're coming up. Have you found it challenging to get in front of investors? And because we've heard from others that it's not the easiest thing to do, that there's a ton of people with ideas out there, but being able to get in front of the people who might be able to invest in your startup can be very challenging. Of course, it's challenging. It's hard. It's hard to ask people for money. It's hard to sell an, a new idea. Get over it. Get out there. Ask for money. Uh, somebody told me once that I'm going to get 70 no's before I get a yes. I'm not quite to 70 yet, but <laughs> I'm going to get there. And, you know, um, you know, of course, like anybody, there are days where you get a little bit discouraged and you think, okay, why is it? But, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Go figure it out. Okay, is it because I'm not saying the right things in this meeting? Am I not meeting that particular investor where they are or, or telling them the story that needs to be told? Um, I guess I always just dump that back onto myself. Just because something's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Have you found um, working cross-culturally a challenge or is it, do you think it's enhanced your experience? Absolutely enhanced. Um, I love it. Um, I'm one of those people that I, I just enjoy meeting people from different cultures, different environments, different backgrounds. I love to hear about why they are who they are and how they became who they are and how they got where we are at this point in time. And so um, for me, you know, I know there are studies out there that say that, like, um, the more diverse a group is, um, the better uh, the outcomes are for that group. And I, I mean, anecdotally, completely subscribe. We have a small team right now, but um, up until about a month ago, I was the only U.S.-based person. So um, I don't speak Spanish. The rest of the team does. Um, so I, I did start start picking up Duolingo, but I just don't have time for it. So, um, And by living in California, you kind of speak almost Spanglais anyway, just by default um, growing up here. And the French that I learned helps a little bit, too, since they're all rooted in the same place. But... Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, sometimes it's a little harder because you might have to communicate a little differently. Um, but the sharing and the learning and the outcomes are amazing with a multicultural, very diverse team. Love it. In fact, I would almost go as far as saying that homogeny is dangerous. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it kind of goes back to that whole Silicon Valley conversation because, mm -hmm. you know, that we said that Silicon Valley is not necessarily known for ethics. It's also not necessarily known for diversity. 
um, in, on the founder teams and on the, okay. the boards and also who gets the money and, and all okay. of that. I mean, we've dug a lot into that in this, in this podcast, speaking with a lot of, especially uh, women right. uh, entrepreneurs and, you know, the challenges that they've, that they've faced um, working, working in this space. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to kind of talk a little bit more. I mean, I'm really, really interested in what you guys are doing in terms of, um, at grape.ag in terms of the, you know, the, the climate implications. And one of those areas is water. Uh, we just did a, a panel last week on how social entrepreneurship can support resilience through water and access to water. Um, and it's such an important kind of vector because there's always like either way too much or not nearly enough and that's the what the weather weirding that you were talking about before that's how it often manifests itself right, right. it's like strange amounts of water so how, how does that work how do you guys um address the water issue so it's the same as the ability to surgically apply your resources. Um, and whether that's with water or, or, or even human capital, right? I mean, you know, something as simple as being able to tell your physical workforce, hey, um, it's going to be 110 degrees in the, these two hours during the day. We're not working during that time. You know, I mean, things like that. But with water, so we have um, water flow sensors. We have uh, humidity sensors, soil sensors that we put into the ground. And they are able to tell you, you know, what what is the degree of wetness in your soil? Is it too wet? Is it too dry? Um, and you're able to more accurately place water when needed as opposed to, you know, just sort of an umbrella watering system. Um, you know, we're still working on those things. Obviously, we're, we are a startup, but um, when what we see and what we're being asked for from our partners is, hey, this would be super helpful to us if we could more surgically water as opposed and know when the plants need the water specifically. Another method of measurement that we're, we're developing is evapotranspiration to understand exactly what the health is of the leaves that are being grown on the plant. So it's, I, I wish I had Martin here because he's so much more eloquent <laughs> talking about these things. Um, I'm not an engineer by training, um, though maybe by osmosis. I, my dad's an engineer, so I, maybe I'm slightly engineering. <laughs> you sound like you know pretty much about it. As you were talking, it made me think about something that I've worked on in the in one of my past lives, which is weather index insurance. Mm -hmm. Have you been thinking at all about feeding into that? No, I mean we have some other um, thoughts and and um, areas to go into, but I, I have to say we the team gets kind of I think frustrated with me because I'm like, okay, great, yeah, there's like 110 other, other crops could we do. could be doing right now, and there, you know, I'm like, focus, focus. Right. We have to, we have to succeed in vineyards. Yes. Um, it's kind of like, you know, learning to walk before you run. And so um, we've actually said no to things because we're, I'm like, we've got to be successful here. And when we're successful here, right. then we can foray. But, you know, our timeline and our plans are within the next two years to be in another crop. So mm -hmm. at least one and probably two. So, um, you know, that's going to be some pretty quick growth for us. Yeah. <laughs> so it's exciting. 
Talk a little bit about what we do with, uh, at the Markless Center and what Bridget does at the Miller Center. How, are, how can you leverage those in a company like Grape? Um, well, and that was a question that I was going to come back to for both of you because, um, you know, I'm a lot closer to the Ethics Center and to the Miller Center than the average person. So because I am a Bronco and an alum and a trustee, and so, of course, I already know about you, and I love all of the fantastic work that you both do. But how how do others find out, okay, well, how can the Ethics Center help me? How could the Miller Center helped me in my position and, and how I think with the, the ESG push and with the care and concern that leaders in the tech world are beginning to have around things like environment, climate change, ethical decision making. I think there that you both are at the beginnings of, I mean, I know we've been around a while and it's the 25th year and all of those things. Um, <laughs> But you're still at the beginning of being phenomenally valuable to this, not just the Silicon Valley, but to the greater world. So I kind of cheated. I mean, it's really not fair. <laughs> so because I know about you and I know what you do and I, I think about it and I utilize it in my work, probably even subconsciously every day. But um, I, I would love to see... Um, others benefit and see the value in it more than they do today. I mean, I think I can think of a couple of applications that apply. One is, you know, we're right now we've got a group of people working in the venture capital and private equity space, helping us draft a set uh, of ethics or a code of ethics or a set of questions for investors so that we can, we can help people make more ethical investments or think about ethics as part of the rubric they're using before they invest in a company. And not just because it's the right thing to do, but in the long run, uh, a company's survival might depend upon the ability of the CEO to be able to do the right thing or not do something horrible that's gonna really do great damage to the company. Well, you might have to get a little more multidisciplinary with uh, the field of psychology and ego management. Yeah, it's been <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Sorry. It's been interesting talking to these folks because, again, it's not a space, an ethics center. We're not, VC, we're not venture capitalists. And so some of these firms do very extensive psychological testing on founders, which I had no idea that they did. And But even then, I think um, somebody can be psychologically sound and still make a poor decision because of pressure to make money or to get to market too soon or, but, but I was, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was, I was surprised uh, that they're do some, not all the firms, but some of them are doing uh, psychological profiles because I think they are trying to find the people who don't have a conscious or um, don't have a moral center. Right. And um, so, I mean, would you put your money in somebody like that? No. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, I don't think, even if we come up with a good set of guidelines, I'm sure there will always be investors who, who don't care about the morals. That's true. They're, they're just uh, concerned about the bottom line. And, I mean, we can think, we can sit here at this table without naming names and think of a few CEOs who seem to not have a moral center, <laughs> who seem to be doing quite well. There was one on trial a couple weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> who got a ton of money, right? Uh, so it, it's interesting to think about, but we're hoping that, you know, moving forward, people are more concerned about this and see the added value of being able to ask ethical questions as part of that investment process. And, and again, knowing that nobody can predict the future, but I think it's, you know, we're excited about the idea of it being one of a number of things that they're looking at as they make that evaluation. It'll be interesting to see how that's integrated, right? Because, yeah. I mean, right. I've learned a lot in just speaking to the VCs as I've gone through this process with Grape.ag. Um, it's interesting to see what they care about. Um, some of them have these parameters around, I, I love this one, you have to have 2 million ARR before we'll even look at you. Well, hello, the whole point is, is I need money to build the company to get to my 2 million ARR. But I mean, you know, I, I mean, they all have their different thresholds. And of course, there are, prob I mean, they've all figured out the probabilities of you succeeding once you've hit that threshold versus before that and all of that. So. It's really not a criticism. It's more of an interesting observation to see what's important. And the other thing that I've come across time and time again is we, we look at the founders and we look at the team, right? And that goes to your point as to how do we find the good players versus the bad players, right? Um, and do we care? And I think there are a lot of them who do care. I, I think that the silicon, I mean, maybe this is me being the glass half full kind of person, but I really do think most people are good and most people want to do good things. But like you said, sometimes there are pressures there that um, good people make bad decisions. So I think that's your sweet spot. How do you find those good people? Because I'm, I'm really not sure you're going to get the small percentage of bad players to switch over and have some ethical <laughs> epiphany around, you know, I should be a, a good person and make better decisions for my community and my, my uh, company. So, um, but it is interesting to, as I'm going through pitches and I mean, I'm learning myself, you know, how do I pitch better? How do I talk to these people in a way that meets them where they are? gives them the information they want so that I get the result that I want, right? And am I being ethical in that always? Yeah. I mean, I, I do get told that I'm too honest. And I'm like, well, but I can't, I don't know what else to do. I can't be something else. Like I have, you know, have to be myself. So um, if myself were not honest, I'd be being that. That is a shocking <laughs> piece of input to get though, from somebody you're pitching to. That you're, you know. No, this but, is very uh, common for women, yeah, yeah, yeah. especially with women. I mean, in our research, yeah. that what what happens is that uh, men tend to pitch the dream, the you know, the billion dollar the idea, the vision, and they get questions about that. And women tend to pitch what they can realistically deliver based on the track record, based on their capabilities, based on what they know that they can do, and they tend to get questions yep. about risks. Like what we're trying to say is it's not just to say pitch like a man yeah. because it's a man's world right now. And only 2% of the funding actually does go to women. So, I mean, there's, you know, one could come to that conclusion. Right. You need to check, you know, like you said, you know, meet them where they are. Okay. I tell you where they are. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, 
you know, it's really a structural problem that we all need to be working on and to change like at the at the bigger. OK, you have your immediate issue and you have your, you know, your right. your company and you need to get your funding. And I totally right. get that. But from our perspective, I think we're thinking systemically and thinking, OK, what is it that we need to do? Well, to we need more women to go out and do what I'm doing and become successful and and blaze that path and say, and, and there are women out there doing it. In fact, I got declined from one VC. This is hilarious because, you know, my co-founder is in Mexico. He's, he's half German. He's half Mexican. Um, he speaks Spanish. He lives down there. He's, he's an engineer. I'm American. I'm a woman. I'm older, you know, than the average bear in this environment. And so, right. And they said, oh, well, you have a male co-founder, so you're not eligible. I said, are you even kidding me? Like, it just cracked me up. I was like, okay, whatever. Like, Actually, they, you know, they only want women because of that 2% number. Well, and then I guess, um, and don't quote me on this, but it's something like 14% male-female co-founders get funded. It, it depends on which market you're looking at. But actually, what's interesting in terms of results, mm-hmm. and this is um, some of the research that uh, uh, Maya Ackerman is sort of, professor here at Santa Clara has done some really exciting research that shows that in terms of actual returns, it is that male-female partnerships that end up doing the best. And it goes, it speaks back to your whole diverse teams provide better results. Um, And that was validated with the research. He looked at this huge uh, database. Um, It was really, really interesting. But it's uh, yeah, I think that we, you know, we look into this a lot because we um, we're focusing on both women's economic empowerment and climate resilience. And there's and in many cases, intersection of both. Right. And um, we are finding that it really is a huge struggle uh, to find funding, particularly in this place where it kind of sounds like it may be more or less where you are, where you already have kind of proof of revenue. You're already starting to. Right. We have proof. I mean, we have installed systems in fields. Um, And I didn't mention this, but not only do we use physical sensors, we have just developed a virtual sensor offering. So now you can actually sign up without putting any hardware in your growing environment and still have some of the benefits of the SAS Mm -hmm. because we're we're using satellite satellite and NASA and local weather and we're triangulating that into data around a particular location. So um, it's pretty darn cool, actually. (laughs) It gets me all excited. (laughs) Yeah. But think about the potential in terms of places like you know, South America, Central America, Africa, other places that are more remote with being able to utilize data like that without ever having to place anything of hardware. So how will you know you succeeded? I mean, I don't know. Of course, you know, there are the numbers, right? And when you get some funding and then you start to hit your goals that we have set for grape.ag and we're able to foray into the next crop. And I mean, all of those, you know, obvious um, ways of saying we're succeeding. Um, But for me, we're succeeding by doing something that is worthwhile for our customers. And, you know, when we first started this, we weren't we felt in our gut that we were doing something good and, and necessary and valuable. Um, Martin likes to talk about being, um, are we a vitamin or are we an aspirin? You know, are we, are we just something 
sort of good to have or, or you might like to have, or are we something really necessary to have? So we want to become really necessary. We want all the people in that are growing grapes and making wine or table grapes to say, if you don't have a grape.ag system, you're crazy because it helps us, you know, with our bottom line, it helps us, we, 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 either lower costs or we can increase yield, which is dollars in this industry. Um, we are better about using pesticides or maybe we're organic and we don't use pesticides, which is even better. But, um, you know, we are able to better run our business because we have this little device, these devices in our field that help us make better decisions for our business and not only for our business, but for our world. So to me, that would be success um, on top of the fact that um, Martin and I talk about what kind of work environment do we want to create for people in the future? Like um, we joked that um, people who don't like dogs won't be welcome in the building. Um, it is a joke. I'm kidding. Um, sort of like we're half kidding. <laughs> um, I'm with you. You know, so um, no, uh, but you know, finding those people with similar values, um, the way we work is crazy. I mean, we work when we need to work. And if we need to go to a dental, and we don't even think about this nine to five day schedule. Um, they're two hours later than me during the day. I mean, there are times they just had a baby five months ago. So you know, I'm like, okay, we call her baby grape. She's adorable. But um, I, I, I got to go give baby grape a bath. Okay, talk to you later. You know, I mean, we just, we are integrating life with work and we're working around that. We're not working to live. And and I think that, um, you know, everybody wants that. I want that. I mean, I, you know, I mean, my life is crazy in other ways. And, and as I said, I have two kids and, you know, I mean, everybody has their own individual lives. And so if we can make it so that we're doing really great things, we're passionate about what we're doing, and we're creating a work environment where it's really easy to breathe as a human being, we think that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty cool. I like it. Yeah. So, you know, at least here in the U.S., uh, the, the wine as far as I understand, I, could, I may be wrong about this, but my impression is that the wine industry does rely on a lot of seasonal migrant workers. No and that that's another dimension, right? Of, you know, mm -hmm. do you take that into consideration how people treat their workers in terms of the kinds of even the customers that you would want to work with? For sure. For sure. Yeah, because that's another area of potential impact, right? Of being able to drive better um, social Yep. Well, and from what I understand and what I hear, and this is purely anecdotal, but um, some of the wineries that we're talking to is it's even hard to get that help. It's becoming more and more difficult to hire people seasonally. And it's totally ridiculous. And we don't want to get into politics and, you know, all of borders and all of that. But, um, you know, so what's happening, too, is, I mean, I know one of my friends is a CEO of an autonomous tractor company, and they are working with all of the big tra tractor manufacturers about how do we do some of the jobs that they can't find people to do anymore. You know, the weeding and, the, you know, and, and maybe we train those people to run, you know, the darn tractor, to program the tractor to do whatever it is they need to do in the fields for that day. Um, so those things are those things are coming, and the nature of work is changing. 
So um, in part by default, <laughs> in part out of necessity. That's for sure. That is for sure. So, uh, Christy, thank you so much for being with us. This is Line of Sight. My name is Don Heider. I'm the executive director of the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. And I'm Bridget Helms, executive director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship, also at Santa Clara University. Thank you. Thank you both for having me and go Broncos.